Thank you so much to the Hall family for doing music this morning for us. And thank you also to Mark for that essay. Hope you're all doing well. If you'd like to continue in your Bibles to Esther chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad in heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh, And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night... The king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands upon King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? 
The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought with which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse who sits at the king's gate, leaving out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, 
Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs and attendants of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. Would you pray with me? I apologize. I think I might have missed one verse kind of in the middle of that unintentionally. Uh, Our Heavenly Father, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Lord, may we praise your goodness and majesty, and may that praise never be out of our hearts. Lord, today may we remember and pray for the persecuted church and for Christians in other parts of the world who suffer greatly for the cause of Christ, who are forced to worship in secret for fear of retribution. We pray for these Christians and churches. Lord, we pray for your nearness to them. Lord, we pray for their faith and reliance on you. And we pray for this church as well, that we would love you above all else, hope in you, and worship you alone. May we not take for granted the rights and privileges we have. May we not be complacent about faith, but may we grow in faith. Lord, may we continue to pray for our community in spite of the challenges that we're facing. You are the God in the sunshine and in the storms. You are our God in the stillness. And in the bleakness, Lord, we continue to pray for this Advent season. Maybe remember the great biblical themes of hope and joy and peace and love during this Advent. And may those be present in our hearts and in our actions. May we remember that our only hope as people and a world is in your Son, our Lord Jesus. May we rejoice that the light has come into a dark world. May we be peacemakers. May we be uniters, not dividers, in a fallen and divisive world. And may we be pointed to greater love for you, for our neighbor, for our community, for our church. Lord, we do want to pray for Mark Cole and his family and his siblings on the sudden and tragic loss of his mother. Lord, I do pray for his dad and what he's going through and experiencing. Lord, I pray for nearness to him. Lord, I pray for Mark and his siblings. Lord, I pray that in this time of grief, that they can have hope. Lord, I do want to continue to pray for Pam Armstrong as she's on the mend and recovering. And just want to pray, Lord, for a full recovery. I want to pray for the doctors who are taking care of her, Lord. And I want to thank you for what she does in this community, taking care of so many of us. Lord, I continue to pray for Barb Allen and her treatment. Lord, pray for her recovery from surgery. Pray for options. Pray for healing. Lord, I do want to pray for the family of Elmo Mercer who passed away and the impact that he had on so many through the gift of music. Lord, we rejoice that he is in your presence. But we pray for those who know him and who mourn his loss today. Lord, we ask that you bless our time in your word. May we be pointed to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
So we're continuing our Advent series in the book of Esther this morning. Last week, we left off in the major conflict of the story. Haman had put forward a plan of extermination against the Jewish people throughout the Persian Empire, which would have effectively wiped out the Jewish race. Esther is the queen of Persia. Her cousin Mordecai has explained these plans to her. And at first, she wants to pass the buck. Yes, she's the queen, but she has no real authority. Approaching the king unrequested could put her at risk of capital punishment. Nevertheless, Mordecai persuades Esther. He argues that she is in this place of royalty in this time for a purpose. When he says, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. At the end of our scene, Esther instructs Mordecai to have all of the Jews in Susa fast for three days. One thing that I've said over the last couple weeks is that I look at the scenes in Esther kind of like a play. And this week we see Act 4, the climax of the story and the plot thwarted. I mentioned a moment ago that this is a three-day fast. And that's where chapter 5 begins. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Esther goes before the king. Now we've seen in this story that this king can be a little bit unpredictable, a little bit volatile. And as we've said, Esther is taking a risk by going before him. And also keep in mind that Haman has a plot against the Jewish people. The king doesn't know that his wife is Jewish. She'd kept that a secret. So there really are risks that she's taking. But in verse 2, we see that the king responds favorably to Esther. And he makes a grand offer in verse 3. The king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. It's the first time he's making that offer. won't be the last. We see similar language in the Gospel of Matthew before John the Baptist is beheaded where Herod makes this offer to Herodias up to half my kingdom. It's important to know that usually that's more of a figure of speech, not a literal offer that he's going to, you know, portion off half of the kingdom and and give it away. But the point is that the king wants to be Generous and show favor to someone. And that's the offer the king makes to Queen Esther. Instead of explaining the situation, which might be what we would expect, or advocating for the Jewish people, or talking about the wickedness of Haman, Esther does something that's really pretty unexpected in verse 4. Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to the feast that I have prepared for the king. She wants to have Haman over for dinner. The man who's seeking to kill her and her people. The king responds by summoning Haman. Haman comes and they have a feast. A brief aside about the book of Esther. There's a lot of eating in this story. The book opens with a feast. Then almost immediately after the king throws another feast. The first queen Vashti throws a feast in chapter 1. When Esther is selected to be queen they throw a feast and here they're throwing another feast. 
at this feast, the king offers again to give Esther whatever she wants up to half his kingdom. The second time he's made this offer. And so again, it might be easy to expect now is the time where Esther will reveal what has been plotted. Reveal Haman's wickedness. Right? No. She asks, asks for another feast. And the next day, Haman is invited to the feast as well. That's part of what Esther requests. And Haman is elated by this. He's feeling pretty good about things. The queen is showing him favor. He's already one of the most powerful people in the kingdom. Verse 9 says, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad in heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Haman is on top of the world. But he lets his anger towards Mordecai continue to gnaw away. If you were here last week, the two men do not like each other. Haman goes home and he stews to his wife, Zeresh. Which, fun fact, is Carrie's middle name this time, really. <laughs> Verse 14. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows, fifty cubits high, be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So Zeresh tells her husband to have Mordecai killed. She she suggests a gallows 50 cubits, which is to say 75 feet high. It's overkill. It's unnecessarily big. Massively high. It's an ironic scene. Haman is seeking to have Mordecai killed and then go to a feast to celebrate. There's no indication that Esther knows about about Haman's plan to kill Mordecai specifically. Haman is plotting against Mordecai. Esther is plotting against Haman. And with that, we come to the end of chapter 5. Chapter 6 begins, and here the timeline of the story matters. Because it's later that evening. And the story takes another pretty unexpected turn. Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night... The king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. So what's happening? The king can't sleep. And he's like, can you read me a story? And so the chronicles of the events of his reign are read to him. Brief pause. It's worth remembering where we are in the book of Esther. At the end of chapter 2, we're in chapter 6 now, but at the end of chapter 2, Mordecai has discovered a plot to kill the king. He reveals the plot. The perpetrators are executed. And I had mentioned last week that it was customary in the ancient world to reward such an act. And the reason is no great mystery, because somebody who saves your life when you're the king... You want a reward because you want to incentivize other people to also look out for you. Also, ironically, later on this king actually would be killed, not in the book of Esther, but just historically. But he didn't reward Mordecai. So back in chapter 6. They're reading him the Chronicles, verses 2 and 3. 
And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been awarded Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So you have Mordecai, whom Haman is plotting to have killed off. Also, if you read Esther, pay attention to the dates it's given, that this is about five years between the time Mordecai saved the king and this night when the king can't sleep. And on the eve of the night, when Haman plans to have Mordecai killed, the king learns of Mordecai's efforts that saved him. Why? Why does he remember? Because they're reading the Chronicles to him because he can't sleep. As I've said numerous times, God isn't mentioned in the book of Esther, but he's present. And he works in mysterious ways. Some of the most important events and moments are situations where the importance is not realized at the time. Back in our story. Verse 4. And the king said, who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Again, lots of situational irony in this story. Had Haman asked a few hours earlier, his request might have been granted. But the king has just been reminded that Mordecai was his savior. The king and Haman are both thinking about Mordecai, but for different reasons. And neither knows that the other person is thinking about him. Verse 6. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Again, do you see what's happening? The king is almost thinking out loud, what should I do for someone I want to honor? And Haman thinks, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? He thinks the king is talking about him. Because if you've been paying attention to this story, Haman is kind of an egomaniac. Verse 8, Haman responds, let the royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Haman tells the king what he would want. He wants to be paraded around like he's the king, and to be celebrated, and to be glorified. But the irony is that he's actually suggesting a treatment for the person he hates. And Haman, if you read, continues. He goes on and on and on about this great procession that should be given. We won't read the whole passage. But he wants all the trappings of royalty, not realizing that the king is asking for Mordecai instead of himself. Verse 10. This is just the first half of verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, I think this is also the verse I... Uh, Honestly, accidentally forgot to read. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said. I'm pausing in the middle of this verse because Haman is thinking to himself, yes, this is what I wanted. This is how it should be. Second half of verse 10, the king says, 
And do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing you have mentioned. Haman has to be shocked. And everything Haman has wanted for himself is given to Mordecai. Verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai. He's the one who's dressing Mordecai. And he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. What a story. Haman heads back home, he tells his wife. Again, she's the one who told him to have these massive gallows built. But in verse 13, she doesn't really give him a a shoulder to cry on. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, he will not overcome him but will surely fall before him. So he comes home. Again, a few hours before he's on top of the world, he comes home saying, telling her what happened. And she's like, oh, yeah, you're doomed. (laughs) And chapter 6 ends with the king's servants arriving at Haman's house. Why? Why are they there? To take him to dinner. Remember, Esther wanted to invite him to a feast. The book of Esther is actually pretty funny. What a reversal of fortunes we've seen in this chapter. And what sparked all of it? A bad night's sleep. Some of the most important events are the moments where we don't realize the importance at the time. That could be true with the events which transpired, which brought us to faith in Christ. It was probably a series of events. And on that road to faith, there were lots of things that at the time might have been seemingly insignificant. But we're looking back, important steps in our spiritual journey. Maybe it was an interaction with someone you had or a sermon you heard. In the book of Esther, the Jewish people are on the brink of a holocaust and it's turned upside down. Because of a case of insomnia. There are places in the Bible where we see dazzling miracles. The signs that God does for the Israelites before Pharaoh. And the Exodus. God parting the waters of the Red Sea. We see the miracles in the ministry of Jesus and in the early church. But miracles in the Bible are actually primarily concentrated in three different time periods. They're not just happening everywhere in the Bible. We see them during the Exodus, during the ministry of Jesus, and in the Old Testament during the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. For the rest of the Bible, for the most part, God works in more subtle ways. He's obviously no less God. He is no less sovereign. But he often works providentially through other means. And in the book of Esther, the main turning point, something so simple as a restless night's sleep. Keep in mind, next time you, we all have nights like that, just think it could change the world. God providentially uses insomnia on behalf of his people. Again, it's easy to read the miraculous events in the Bible and to be impressed by those grand things. But we should be no less impressed by the subtle things that God uses for just as grand of 
purposes. And we should keep that in mind in our own lives as well. Yes, God is the God of the big things, but he's also the God of the little things. He's also the God of the seemingly random things. He's also the God of the seemingly insignificant things. I think of the events surrounding my niece's birth a few weeks ago. I think I mentioned this before, but my sister-in-law switched doctors while she was pregnant. Switched from a, a smaller hospital to a more major medical center. Not because there were any complications. Not that they knew them at the time. And I think of when our niece was born. Had she been born at a small, small town hospital compared to a big hospital with a NICU, she might not have made it. I think of the 25 minutes the doctor spent reviving her. What if they had stopped a minute earlier or two minutes earlier? She wouldn't be here. Those little decisions. I think of when Carrie and I met. Before we met, there was a chain of events already in line that had made that possible. We were living in other parts of the country. She was in Atlanta. I was in Minnesota. She had a boyfriend. Less cool than me, but... <laughs> she was getting ready to move closer to him to sign a lease. And within two days... Her dad, who was living in Alabama, took a job in St. Louis, and their relationship ended. Her dad taking that job in St. Louis was not an easy decision. It was going to be moving them away from the family. Carrie was freshly single, didn't have anything keeping her in Atlanta. Her parents asked if she wanted to move to St. Louis. She said, sure. So when we met online, she created her profile saying she was in St. Louis, but she was still in Atlanta planning to move to St. Louis. I was in a rural part of Minnesota, so I'd expanded my search radius, which included St. Louis, but not Atlanta. And so ultimately, she ended up moving from Atlanta to Minnesota, not having lived in St. Louis in that time. <laughs> All the little things. Had her relationship not ended when it ended, we might not have ever met. Had her dad not taken a job in St. Louis, we might not have ever met. Had she not agreed to move to St. Louis... We might not have ever met. And had that not happened, I probably wouldn't be here today. And I say that because 100% of conversations I've had in the little over a year I've been here always go like this about the, the search process. We liked you, but we really liked Carrie. <laughs> God is at work. He is at work in our community. He's at work in our lives. He's at work in our world. And he's been at work throughout history. Before the birth of Christ, God used an angel to communicate to Mary. In a, in a dream, he communicated to Joseph. And here he used a sleepless night to work his plans through a pagan king in Persia. And at the birth of Christ, God used Roman laws to orchestrate Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Just like the vain and insecure Haman. When Jesus was born, you had the cruel Herod, who saw the advent of Christ as a threat to himself. Just like Haman, he was genocidal. But God 
brought Jesus and his parents safely from Egypt to Israel. Other way around, from Israel to Egypt. And in that, fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy. And in that, worked his plans. God is sovereign over his creation. And here God is working on behalf of Esther and Mordecai and on behalf of his people. With that, we come to chapter 7. And I feel like the previous two chapters took their time building up the story. We see a fairly rapid climax in chapter 7. They're at this feast that Esther has thrown. Again, chapter 5 is the day before. Chapter 6 is the night between the two days. Chapter 7 is the next day. So it's a pretty short time period. And again, the king asks Esther what he wants up to half his kingdom. Chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been solely sold merely as slaves, men and women... I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. By implication, this is the first time in the story where Esther is making it known that she's Jewish. She doesn't say it in those terms, but it's obvious as she talks about the plan of destruction against her people. Where she says that they have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. She's referring to Haman's bribery of the king. Verse 5, the king responds. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? Some commentators, I think this is probably right, think that the king is a little bit trying to divest himself of any responsibility because he is the king who ultimately allowed it to happen. But here at the feast with Haman who he thought he was going to be honored by Esther, who he thought was going to be honored by the king, for the first time is called out by name, verse 6. And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, the wicked Haman. Then Haman terrified before the king, Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The king leaves the room full of fury. Haman pleads with Esther for his life. And in the process of that, he actually falls down on the couch, which is the moment the king re-enters the room and he sees that and takes it the wrong way, thinks he's trying to assault Esther. And that really seals his fate. Verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. The unnecessarily high gallows that Haman had constructed for Mordecai are the place where Haman himself will be executed. Another final twist of irony in his life. That's like how King Louis XVI helped 
perfect the guillotine blade and then ultimately died by a guillotine in 1793. It's amazing to consider Haman's life. He had been on top of the world. The king's number two in the world's superpower. And in one night, he lost it all. Life is fleeting. Blessings can come when we least expect it. Life can change in an instant. And that can be true for better or for worse. Our lives are finite and fragile. We're always one event from our lives and the lives of our families being totally turned upside down. No matter what we do, no matter how good we think we are, no matter how hard we work, no matter how well we plan, we are not ultimately sovereign over our own lives. Haman was powerful, comparatively far more powerful than any of us. And at the end of this chapter, he's dead. Judgment does come for those who oppose the Lord and his people. Even when justice seems far off or like it doesn't come, it will come either in this life or after it. And when we're suffering for us, when we're suffering, when we're struggling, things can change. Maybe not always, and certainly not always in the timeline that we want, and not always necessarily in the way we would expect. And things still happen on the other side of eternity, where we get the change that we did want or need. Sometimes things can change. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes things can get better. Sometimes they don't. It can all seem so random and cruel and unforgiving. And when things do seem unfair or cruel or random, we must have a theology of who God is to fall back on and to rely on and to have as our bedrock. What the book of Esther should remind us is that nothing is random and that nothing is meaningless in our lives. If God can use the unjust killing of his son for the good of the world, he can surely use the difficulties and injustices in our own lives for his ultimate purposes. Because in our lives, in the good times, the bad times, the in-between times, what we need to do is to remember our God and to live for him, to serve him, And know that he is working all things to his plans. He is working all things for his glory. And he is working all things for our good. To the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness. Lord, you are mighty and sovereign. Lord, you are working in ways we don't know even right now. But for that we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.